Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Donald J. Trump. If on the night of November the 8th, Donald Trump is handed the key to the White House and Oval Office by American voters... Watch the potential impact on Canada and Canadians. In his Republican convention nominee for POTUS acceptance speech Thursday, Trump slammed NAFTA as the absolute worst trade deal the U.S. has ever agreed to. Have a listen. America has lost nearly one-third of its manufacturing jobs since 1997, following the enactment of disastrous trade deals supported by Bill and Hillary Clinton. Remember, it was Bill Clinton who signed NAFTA, one of the worst economic deals ever made by our country or, frankly, any other country. Never, ever again. So there's Donald Trump last Thursday as he accepted the nomination from the Republican Party for President of the United States. Absolutely the worst trade deal the U.S. has ever agreed to NAFTA. And he made it abundantly clear that a Trump administration will be all about America first, and that includes trades with Canada, trade with Canada, um, as well as the United States rapidly becoming a major oil exporter. Now, given a bellicose U.S. president to the South, I asked a question a couple of days ago on Twitter. And the question was this, if Trump wins the White House and puts his American first policy in place, including ripping up NAFTA, maybe, which experts say is impossible, just as the Trump GOP nomination was impossible, is our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau the equal to a President Donald Trump in a stare-down, face-to-face, all right? If it comes to a bellicose, I love that word, bellicose, if it comes to a bellicose Donald Trump, President of the United States, engaged in his America First policy, doesn't care about Canada, doesn't care if you like him or not, doesn't like NAFTA, do we have the man in the prime minister's office who is capable of engaging in a stare-down with Donald Trump? Now, the responses were interesting. I'll share them with you shortly, and I'll ask you how you would answer that question. And if you say no, then who? But first, we're going to talk about something that's significantly important to us and part of this overall equation, and that is pipelines, building pipelines. (sighs) Pipelines. I know it irritates some people, but we need pipelines heading for the Pacific and Atlantic ports now in order to export our number one commodity, oil, Let's make the case. Kenneth P. Green is Senior Director of Natural Resource Studies at the Fraser Institute, the think tank, and co-author of a Fraser Institute report which argues pipeline construction must be expedited in Canada's best economic interest 
in excess of $18 billion annually could be realized by Canada through oil exports featuring pipeline access to ports. There's a great deal more. Ken Green, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. My, uh, um, what's the most important? What's the most important question that you sought to answer with your report? What did you start with? Well, we wanted to put some um, <clears throat> numbers into what has been a, a generic equation or discussion of should we build pipelines or shouldn't we build pipelines? We wanted to figure out what we're losing because we're forced to sell into the glutted U.S. market and can't get our product into international markets, Canadian natural resources, oil. Uh, and so we, we estimated, we used a few forecasts of demand and price and, and um, how much we could get to the, the port coasts through pipelines uh, to figure out what we're losing or what we stand to lose if we don't get these pipelines built. So what's our situation, Ken, now, as far as being competitive with getting crude oil to market is concerned? Right now, we actually are not uh, very competitive. We, we almost virtually all of our oil, in fact, all of it, just about, uh, goes to the United States, uh, into the Oklahoma center of the country, where there, there's a giant glut of oil. Um, and some of it does reach the Gulf Coast refineries, but um, it, it's mostly consumed in the U.S. market. So we're getting 20 to 30 percent less per barrel of oil than we would if we could sell it to the higher price markets like Asia or Europe. So what does that mean to Canada? And what does that mean to Canadians as far as dollar numbers are concerned, as far as taking care of our social programs is concerned, as far as paying for our pension plans is concerned, as far as looking after ourselves and our health care is concerned? What does that mean to us when we break it down into the individually important aspects of Canadian sure. life? Well, let's say we went ahead and did was what was planned, and, and we produced a million barrels of oil a day and sold that abroad. Our estimates are that, that at $60 a barrel, which is not particularly high compared to what the forecasts are moving forward, but at $60 a barrel, we would take in $4 billion into the sector, which is the workers, the shareholders, the company workers, the supply chain workers, all of the people who are part of the equation of building a pipeline, producing oil, and moving it. Um, and there would be about a billion dollars just to governments from, uh, from royalties alone. That doesn't even include taxes uh, on all of those people I just mentioned, on their profits and on their earnings. Now, in the uh, article you wrote in the Calgary Herald, I saw the number $18 billion annually, maybe more. Explain that, please. Well, if oil goes to sixty dollars a barrel, of course, then it reaches four point two billion. Right. Um, I'd have to look to see where the eighteen is. That's probably at a hundred dollars a barrel. Um, but uh, if we, if, if you were to take all of Canada's heavy oil and sell it at the world price, it would actually get an additional twenty-eight billion dollars a year with oil at eighty dollars a barrel. So if we stopped selling to the Americans and sold it all overseas, we'd stand to make uh, twenty-eight billion dollars a year extra. At 28 a year, 28 billion a year, which could be the deficit that Mr. Trudeau eventually, or maybe not so far down the future, maybe this year, will wind up running. So we're talking about increased pipeline capacity, and in the news have been the names Energy East, Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion, and the Northern Gateway Pipeline specifically. These have all been in the news. Uh, how badly, again, do we need these pipelines built? Well, we need, them, uh, we need them built if we're to realize the expanded um, economic growth 
that we have that we've been counting on, planning on, and forecasting budgets based on the idea that we're going to we were going to double the, the production of the oil sands and sell that abroad. Uh, so without that, we have to find we have to find some other way to have comparable economic growth. Otherwise, we're going to be slugging along without without a significant source of growth. Um, so we need them badly. Uh, I think the the Energy East is the most um, has the best, very best logical case for it because Eastern Canada right now imports oil from other countries, right. from the United States, from Middle Eastern countries, from countries that are not democratic, from countries that do not have civil rights. It's insane. From countries that that uh, are internationally bad actors. When they could be using domestic Canadian oil, which is already that there's already a surplus of, and so there seems to me to be no excuse to stand in the way of that particular pipeline, and it's it needed uh, on a moral basis immediately, and, and on a, a national basis in terms of national serving our own markets, uh, it's needed. It's needed as well. The other two are needed because the the, the biggest markets with the highest prices in the future are predicted to be the Asian markets, and you need to get to the Pacific. Um, to get there. Well, we have a prime minister who has not shown enthusiasm for the pipelines. When he went to Washington and met with uh, the the think tank in Washington, he never even mentioned the the oil sands and the the significance of the oil sands to Canada. He talked about um, economic challenges and jobs being lost, but that's as far as he went. We have a prime minister who doesn't appear to be interested in pipelines, who in fact, I would argue, seems to be an enemy of building pipelines. Um, in, your, in your article, in your, in your research, you say the federal government has to get behind, not only has to get behind the pipelines, but has to push and push hard now. Well, you, yes. I mean, there is the, there, there's... Uh, there's a question of whether or not uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's language on pipelines uh, matches the reality of what he believes, uh, and al- also whether pipelines are even vaguely compatible, uh, and expanding the oil sand production is even vaguely compatible with what he swore to do in Paris. And I think that's where the cha- that's where the problem is. He, what he swore to do in Paris really uh, actually rules out developing the oil sands further. They can't, they can't grow much beyond 2025 at all. Uh, and that'll hit the the Alberta cap on oil on emissions, but even then they may have to have to curtail production even earlier than that to meet his one and a half degree climate target that he agreed to in Paris. So he's saying he understands the need for pipelines. He's saying he that, that Canada wants them. He told his advisors to get get one of them done. Um, but at the end of the day, he signed onto a target under which you can't actually develop that. Bitumen, you can't produce it. Right. So what? Something's going to have to give. Either either the target's going to give, or oil sand production is going to give. But something has to give. And if the oil sands production gives, the quality of life in this country changes. The uh, the amount of money that we have annually changes because the money will lose billions of dollars annually. That's what we'll give if we don't have the pipelines. Correct. Yes, that's right. Um, and oil production and export has been a major part of Canada's economic growth for many, many years, uh, and it, it was expected to continue. Uh, without it, we will be leaving that money in the ground, while other countries will still will supply the oil that we would have supplied anyway. Right. There's no question that countries are going to do without it. There's no way to trans- transport goods, uh, to fly planes, drive cars, and so forth, and that's something that China and India and Africa and emerging countries uh, want to do on a par with the way we do it. So the oil is going to be produced around the world. The only question is whether we're just going to be on the sidelines watching. 
Yeah. Ken Green, thank you for the time. Thank you for the time. Good talking to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Talk about somebody who could take on Donald Trump. And that's what we were doing in the last little while, talking about the pipelines for Canada and then also tackling Donald Trump as prime minister of this country, were he to become the president of the United States. Well, Gloria Allred uh, tackled Donald Trump and took him on and won in 2012 in a very public lawsuit against uh, Mr. Trump. In 2012, uh, Ms. Allred represented Jenna Talakova, who was kicked out of the Miss Universe Miss Canada beauty pageant after officials learned she'd been born with a penis. The pageant had a rule at the time requiring contestants to be, quote, naturally born female, and there was a high-profile public battle between Gloria Allred and Donald Trump, which saw transgender Janet Alakova reinstated, but not involved until arguments involving Mr. Prince, uh, Trump's private parts were involved. I read the story. I thought, wow, uh, this is taking me where I don't want to go. Gloria Allred joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Cordless Radio Network, one of the United States' most famous lawyers and and uh, duly earned and uh, delegate for the Democrat, almost a Republican Democratic Convention, and a delegate for Hillary Clinton. It's all right. Good to have you with us again. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Roy. I'm excited to be here in Philadelphia uh, as a California delegate for Hillary. I was elected in my congressional district, and uh, to be part of making what we'll call her story rather than his story. It's her story. Uh, to see the first woman nominated by a major political party in the United States for the presidency uh, of the United States. In the women's movement, Roy, we've long had a saying that a woman's place is in the House, the White House, and now we're going to work to make that dream come true. How do you make the case for Hillary Clinton as president of the United States to the American people? It looks, according to polling, they're fairly close, Trump and, uh, and Hillary Clinton, and they're, they're disliked um, or not trusted by a significant percentage of Americans. Now this morning I've been hearing again that the fix was in for Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders, and Sanders supporters are unhappy. How do you make the case at the convention? Well, it's already over the convention, but how do you make the case to the American people? Well, I mean, it, it is a clear choice, and to me this is a life-and-death choice because, uh, I mean, the idea that Donald Trump, with his volatile temper, might be in control of the nuclear codes is just a prospect that should send send a chill up of everybody's spine. It certainly does in mine. Uh, I mean, she has the experience. Uh, she, I, I think at this point, she's about the strongest woman on earth. She's certainly, there's no one better qualified. No one has the breadth of her experience as a uh, United States senator, as secretary of state, as uh, a longtime fighter uh, for health care, for everyone uh, and uh, and for children. And she has been subjected to the most brutal attacks for not just this president this year, in which we're going to decide the presidency, but for decades. And not only has she survived, but she has fought back and she has subjected herself to countless uh, in, uh, committee investigations by the Republican-controlled Congress. She's answered every question. She sat there for hours and hours, and, 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 and she has prevailed. So uh, I, she can do it, but only, she can only do it if we uh, continue to support her uh, and get out there and fight for her. And, uh, and that's what I plan to do, and I know millions of others plan to do as well. 
Mr. Trump certainly has baggage that he's taking out with him uh, into the uh, into the general election. The fact that he couldn't let go of Ted Cruz the other day after he was nominated yeah. just uh, I found that I found that disturbing. You have to be able to let go and move on. But at the same time, you have Hillary Clinton, who was targeted by the FBI director, who stopped just short of some people would say he stopped far short. But it sounded to me like he stopped just short of uh, of recommending an indictment against the former secretary of state. That is going to resonate with American voters. How do you get past that? Well, I think what the, what the FBI director Comey, a Republican, did was unprecedented in the sense that uh, I don't remember any other time where an FBI director held a news conference to explain why he was not prosecuting someone, why he was not going to ask that the person being investigated be indicted, uh, and then why he then would then criticize the person whom he decided he was not going to prosecute. Uh, but anyway, he did what he did. Um, he, he, he said that no reasonable prosecutor, based on the evidence, would indict uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. And so it wasn't just that he wouldn't. He's saying no reasonable prosecutor would, based on those facts. The fact that someone might be sloppy... Is, that's not that does not equal criminal conduct, and uh, and, and so I, you know I think what the American people are going to need to focus on and want to focus on are the big issues. For me, one of the biggest issues, Roy, is the fact that the next president of the United States is going to be able to make appointments, probably to three appointments, to uh, vacancies on the United States Supreme Court, and whoever is nominated and whoever is confirmed is going to be a justice perhaps for decades to come, long after whomever is elected president is no longer president, and will have an impact on the law and on the impact of everyone's life long after that president is gone. And Donald Trump has already released his list of who he would appoint should he become president or who he would nominate, and they are, for the most part, very right-wing people, extremely uh, right wing, some of them very anti the right to choose abortion, which is a big issue as far as I'm concerned. If we have and enough. We have about twenty. Have we have about twenty seconds, Miss Ulrich. We have to wrap up in about twenty seconds. Uh, you, you've always obviously you've really always liked Hillary Clinton, and she's your choice. You're the delegate. The American yes. people will decide on November the eighth, and I hope we can talk to you again before that vote. Uh, I will look forward to it, and I'm looking forward to the historic nomination on Thursday as well. Thanks, Roy. Thanks for the time. Gloria Allred from uh, Philadelphia, usually from Los Angeles, but today from Philly. We'll come right back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we've spoken to um, women in the RCMP for, I think, five years now periodically, about the charges that they have made and the charges that they have brought forward and the lawsuits that they have brought forward against male colleagues in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Charges of sexual harassment, sexual assault, bullying, just out-and-out aberrant behavior. And Until now, the women who have come forward from male-dominated first responder organizations 
and charged their male colleagues with sexual harassment, assault, bullying, and other abuse have been women from the RCMP. And women civilian employees of the RCMP, two weeks ago, um, we had a, a panel on the air with their psychiatrist. But now we have female firefighters coming forward with the same criminal complaints. Two female firefighters and an RCMP civilian employee join us on the Roy Green Show on the Coros Radio Network. You may have heard of them in media in this country, but this is the first time that they're appearing together on a broadcast in Canadian media. Toya Montague is uh, back with us. She's a RCMP civilian employee. And uh, Toya has been on the program, I think, three times. Her case continues to stagger forward slowly, and it's draining her bank account. It's got her almost bankrupt. And you'd be a fool to, to suggest there's not some method to the madness of slowing this process of her case down until she runs out of money. That's certainly the way you feel, Atoya, isn't it? Absolutely, Roy. It's, uh, you worded it quite perfectly. And it's not, not just the financial burden, but the emotional and traumatic and medical burden on dragging these things out. It really makes you very sick because you're constantly being re-traumatized. Um, and when women aren't validated for the traumatic and harassing events that they went through in the workplace, it actually compounds that um, illnesses and the sickness that comes with it, right? Which I think my friend talked about last week or two weeks ago on your show. So I think it's important to point that out too. It's not only uh, a disservice to us from a financial standpoint and an obvious tactic on the legal side to get you to quit and let it go, but it's uh, deliberately um, making you more sick, and they know that. They, they're very well aware of that, and I'm sure um, Leanne and Jamie will speak about that today too. Um, but I think that's just an important uh, point to highlight, that uh, the best way to deal with these things is to move forward quickly and efficiently and sit down with the women and yeah. acknowledge uh, oh, absolutely. the hurt, the pain, and the, the issues. Absolutely, Atoya, because, you know, we've heard, we've talked to so many women now on, on the show. We know there's more than 500 women from the RCMP who are in a class action lawsuit. Yours is separate to theirs. And the number is far too great for what the commissioner of the RCMP, who continues to refuse to come on this program to speak about the issue, we talk to the women he calls bad apples or problems or whatever uh, Commissioner Paulson calls, calls women who are, are in court. Um, the need is for rapid response because it takes a tremendous amount of courage to step up and step forward. Uh, also with me are Leanne Tessier. She was a firefighter in, uh, in Nova Scotia. And Jamie Wilson, who was a firefighter in Toronto. Hi, Leanne. Hi. Jamie, hi. Good to talk to you. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me on the show. Please, uh, Leanne, talk to us uh, a bit about and introduce yourself, please, to my listeners. And, and tell us what, what was going on in, in your life professionally. You're a very accomplished firefighter. You've, you've done things that, that we should know about that few firefighters can do. So talk to us about that. And then what, what has happened to you? How have you been mistreated? Well, I started off in about 1998 uh, as a volunteer and just thought it would be incredible to get involved in. I was uh, athletic, and I thought the challenge would be up my alley. And uh, I was a go-getter. I cared about what I did. I tried to take as many courses as I could and um, eventually became a captain and uh, was a uh, paid. I got my level two firefighting qualifications. Um, normally, you just you know you 
most people just get one. I want I wanted to, you know, get two, level two. Um, I got my um, instructor um, level one uh, training instructor certification. Um, I also sort of began. Um, I was a, a member of the HRM Firefighter Combat Challenge team in 2005 and did that for at least five years. And I won uh, many national uh, events. So, was a, so you weren't the you weren't the firefighter. You know, I've I've had the seen the emails and I've read them on the air. There've been a few saying, "Well, these are just the word." The last one, last email I got was princesses. Who who just want to have the, the take the easy ride? They don't want to do the difficult stuff. They want to take the easy ride, and then when they are asked to do something difficult, they just refuse or they complain. Certainly, not you, with all the things that you've done. Yeah, no, I mean I. And I'm not saying that it applies to any woman who joins the these um, first responder organizations. Some say paramilitary organizations, but you. You were a full-time participant. Yeah, I mean, usually we're seen as as, uh, we can't do the job, we're not capable of the job, and yet we've demonstrated it time and time again over the last, I don't know how many decades that we can do the job. Um, You know, I I won in 2003 uh, third in the world in the tandem event at the nationals, or at the international um, competition in Las Vegas. You know, I strove to, to be fire fit, and it's a big deal, and... What's what's interesting about that is that uh, many of my officers sort of part of the problem that I had it was that a lot of my my um, strengths or qualifications were ignored or downplayed, and um, one of my officers in my particular station would often say, you know, he couldn't care less about the combat challenge, you know, despite the fact that HRM sent many teams, you know. Uh, to international and national events, right. and it, you know it's just seen as kind of disempowering you and you as a woman. And I won uh, a gold medal at the Canadian Nationals at one year, and um, not one, not not one officer or anybody even asked about how I did or uh, congratulated me in any way. And so, so you you weren't you you weren't wanted. You weren't wanted at all. No, no, no you you were not there. They didn't want you at all. What were some of the things that happened to you? Well, you know, it's. I guess it started getting bad in 2005, and it's been this long that you know I'm still having to fight tooth and nail to for some justice. So it it started getting worse in 2005 until about 2008 or 2009, and it was, you know, everything from, you know, like I say, downplaying or ignoring my accomplishments to gossip in the workplace where officers were campaigning against me uh, there was you know I was called uh, especially after I formally complained I was called nuts or labeled crazy or a liar um, I was called a, uh, a troublemaker and a drunk you know and this sort of stuff was festering and not being dealt with so I went to uh, try to get make uh, the fire service aware of the gossip that was happening and they they did nothing they let it fester so everything from, you know, I was a drinker to, you know, um, involved, allegedly involved with members of the fire service. And, and so this innuendo and gossip just circulated around. Yeah. And 
you know, uh, other times I was undermined. My authority as a captain was was undermined. Um, I was overlooked for a training position. I was uh, denied, you know, after I complained to, I was denied fill-in work. I was a paid fill-in. Uh, actually got So paid. clearly they, they had one objective, and that was to get you out. That That's what it sounds like. For on yeah. the air, and when when and when you and I talked, and the Human Rights Commission in Nova Scotia didn't do much, or Human Rights Tribunal refused to even consider your case uh, after you went to them after a number of years. I have to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue, and we'll also speak. We want to talk to Jamie Wilson about what what she experienced in Toronto um, as a firefighter, and then we'll have our guests speak to each other. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. One of the common denominators, or, yeah, one of the common denominators, all of the women that I've spoken to on this program over the last six years about how they've been uh, mistreated as members of the RCMP. Now we're hearing from firefighters, and you're going to hear more as, uh, as women come forward. One of the common denominators is they all cared about their job. They all cared about their career. It wasn't a job. It was a vocation. It's something they loved to do. Toya Montague from the RCMP, Leanne Tessier, uh, Nova Scotia firefighter, Halifax. You've heard some of Leanne's story. Jamie Wilson, and we're going to continue uh, to, with, with uh, Leanne's story and, and Toya as well, because after the Human Rights Tribunal turned down Leanne and uh, cost a lot of money, the Supreme Court of Nova Scotia became involved. We'll get to that in, in a little bit. Uh, Jamie Wilson, you may have heard about and read about Toronto firefighter who... Um, who is also, um, you're, 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 are you in court now, Jamie, or are you going to court? Um, I have a Ontario human rights application that's on hold right now because the Toronto Firefighters Union have filed a grievance, but there's been no action on that grievance for the past uh, eight months. Okay, now the union has not been on your side. Um, I mean, they've. I've been in contact with them, but... It's been over three years now, and I don't feel like anything's really moving forward. Okay, let's move it. Let's go back to the beginning. You did this job because you loved it. Yes. And you were good at it. I love the job, and I I am good at it. And it takes an incredibly strong woman to do this job. And I've never met a princess, as you mentioned earlier. Um, But as uh, McLean's wrote about um, Atoya, they, they broke me just like they broke her. I mean, you can't put out with years and years of abuse without it affecting you. And I kept pushing through and pushing through because I did love the job and I thought I could do it, but it was my nervous system that broke down after being assaulted by one member um, over a two-and-a-half-month period. He punched you in the face. Um, he, he, would, um, he started out like that, like punching me near my face but just stopping short, and then he started pushing, kicking, yanking, and punching me. Yeah, and he was charged by Toronto police, and there was an investigation. Um, fortunately, he wasn't convicted, but as we know, there's a very low conviction rate with this type of thing. And the detective did tell me that the firefighters that did witness some of this abuse um, colluded with him and changed their story. I want people to think about this. Well, you go to a job, you go to work every day, you're doing something that's dangerous. You put your life on the line every day when you go to work. And then you deal with this while you're at work from your colleagues. What, what, other, what, other, what other things happened to you, Jamie? Um, it pretty much started from the beginning. I, I was a, a recruit and a training officer was um, 
making sexualized comments and I was just you know brushing them off I mean I was on probation until it got to the point where he pinned me up against a counter and shoved his groin in my bum and he started whispering in my ear and I was just terrified like I, I knew it would be a he said she said because there were no witnesses and it just progressed uh, into my first haul my captain would scare me um, at one fire scene he told the driver to drive and he left me behind I had to walk over a kilometer with all my gear um, I, I was stalked in the fire hall he would spy on me when I was sleeping and it was it was scary and I was moved and then at that hall my personal protective gear was tampered with and my captain was bullying me um, when your personal protective gear is, is tampered with that's the equipment that keeps you alive right that's right yeah, and my, my helmet had been tampered with, and I actually didn't complain about it. I accused somebody, and that person called the union, and they did an investigation. Did you ever ask, you ever ask why? I mean, you know. Well, I was the only woman at that fire hall. Of, there was 24 men in total. and uh, Did anybody I, stand up for you? No, no. I mean, I was already being called a slut at work and being told I was lucky to be there and just keep your mouth shut. So, yeah, they did, no one stood up for me, and they never found out who actually did it. Leanne, did anybody stand up for you? No, not at all. It was, uh, it's familiar. It's um, women are, the women, even the women that have been harassed, like you in the station, are afraid to speak up. And the men seem to protect each other and side with each other. No one will say anything. It's funny how... Um, Jamie's mentioning tampering of, of gear. My my uh, I had most of my gear in my car because I floated between two stations, but I had uh, coveralls and a, a first responder plaque um, hung on the wall above my hook. And um, I, I noticed um, when things started to get bad in the beginning that my coveralls were often dropped on the platform, um, boot platform or down on the ground. And this happened over a number of months, six or seven times. You know, a week would go by, nothing would happen, and my my plaque would be turned upside down. Or and then one one occasion, um, my coveralls were thrown in a in a corner with dirty boots placed on top of it. Um, and again, you know, at one point, my coveralls completely disappeared where nobody else's gear was gone. Yeah. I have to but take a break. Gone, I have to and I complained about it via email, verbally, and nothing was ever done about it. I have to take a break in a minute, and then we'll come back and we'll have Toya and, and uh, Julianne and, and Jamie just talk to each other about what has happened and what needs to happen going forward, because I think you're very courageous doing what you're doing, but were you also physically assaulted? We have like 10 seconds. No, break. it was more of um, psychological, uh, psychologically battered. I would put it at. They wore they wore you down. They wore me by yeah, ignoring me, overlooking me, belittling me, devaluing me. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take this break. We'll come back with Atoya Montague, Leanne Tessier, and Jamie Wilson on the Roy Green Show on the Cornish Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. My guests are Atoya Montague. She was a civilian employee, still is a civilian employee of the RCMP, fighting a, a court battle. Uh, we're going to talk more about that. Leon Tessier is a, a firefighter, 
from Nova Scotia. Have you been hearing some of the challenges that Leanne faced? And Jamie Wilson, Toronto firefighter, and what she has faced. And it's not easy for these women to come forward. And we, the line was used, women not wanted. I remember in 2011 talking to Sherry Benson Podalchuk, who wrote a book titled Women Not Wanted. Sherry's an amazing speaker. And just looking at a Globe and Mail story, one day she went into the bathroom and closed the door of her stall. It fell on top of her and split her head open. Some of her fellow officers had thought it would be funny if they removed the screws that kept the door secure. On another occasion, she opened her locker to discover a dead prairie chicken dripping blood all over her belongings. And I remember Sherry telling me on the air that she was she called in for assistance uh, on, on, a, on a call she was out on, and nobody came. Nobody came to help her. All right. Um, Atoya, where, where, where do we go now? I mean, you... How, things for you now are extremely difficult. We need that question asked. Because here's the big thing. It's shocking to hear these stories from all these women, and believe me, Roy, I hear them from a number of other firefighters and RCMP women on a daily basis. But what's more shocking is the lack of support and the fact that there's no resources and no organization for us to go to that can help us through the process once we get fed up enough to complain or sick enough. Like Jamie, I had the full nervous emotional, physical breakdown that stopped me in my tracks and I couldn't move forward. Um, But there's nowhere for us to go, and there are no experts for us to turn to. So we've been bumbling along trying to figure this out on our own, individually. It's a very lonely road. It's a very difficult road. And that's why we have banded together now, because there is no one else for us to go to than each other. And we're each other's best supporters. We can help each other, those of us who are further along in the process, do our best to help others and advise and provide emotional support and and medical, point them to medical services that they may require. But we really need, in Canada, we really need a professional organization for women in these situations to go to because the union is failing us, the Human Rights Commission of Canada, and in the provinces are failing us on a whole lot. Well, the Prime Minister has said he's a feminist, right? That could be a whole hour on that alone. And the Prime Minister is failing us, and meanwhile telling the world that he's a feminist and believes in gender parity and equality. Oh, really? Well, last time I checked, feminists wouldn't let women be treated like this in organizations that they're responsible for in their own country. And we're talking about women being raped at work, gang raped, um, you know, physically assaulted like Jamie. I was getting very emotional listening to Jamie's story. It's horrific. It's horrific what she went through. And yet she had no one to go to either, and her union's failing her. So Canada needs to take this a lot more seriously. It's shocking and disturbing that in 2016 we're still having this conversation. And we're only representing, we're just three women, but each of us probably represent 100 or more women in our own organizations who are just too afraid to come forward. Well, doesn't, Toya, doesn't, doesn't that speak volumes if you have women who are afraid to come forward and talk about abuse they're experiencing? They're afraid to come forward and talk about it. Huge volumes. That speaks Toya. volumes. And I have to tell you something. They're in Nova Scotia, their chief executive officer in charge of fire service, went on the news and keeps saying how proud he is that no one has complained since 2012 and that they've eradicated harassment in the workplace, to which I laugh out loud. I'm not with the fire service, but I do talk to Leanne on a daily basis and, and, and hear from other fire uh, service women who have active complaints that that very same fire service is actively trying to suppress the evidence for. They're trying to prevent the harassers in Leanne's case from showing up to her tribunal to testify. How is that 
showing that you actually want women to come forward and it's a safe place to complain when they're, to this day, in 2016, actively working against Leanne's pursuit of justice. He's a liar. He's lying on the news to the Nova Scotian public. That's just wrong. And if, until the leaders get this right, we don't stand a chance, Roy. We women don't stand a freaking chance. Leanne, uh, Jamie, want to jump in here? Well, I, I know personally, you know, many women, both career and volunteer here in Nova Scotia and Halifax, uh, throughout the years who complained about harassment and mistreatment, and nothing was done about it to the, for them. So they ended up getting pushed out or they had to leave because nothing was ever done. And, you know, Halifax Fire had the chance time and time again throughout the years to do something about the discrimination, and they didn't. And they can spout off stats about, you know, how there's no gender discrimination here in our fire service. That is not, not accurate and to what's really going on behind the scenes. And, again, women are terrified of retaliation because they've seen someone like me and um, another woman here, Kathy Symington, who spoke out, we, they've seen what we've gone through. We've seen the backlash, the hate, the labeling from other men, from um, the, the supervisors we've gone to, the HR personnel that we've gone to. No one gives a damn. No one cares less about us and what we've gone through. And we're not, the bottom line is that we, you know, we're just not believed. Historically, we've never been believed, women who speak out about this sort of thing. We've never been taken seriously, listened to. These claims are just not handled properly. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're uh, talking about domestic violence or a college student at university or white or blue collar in the workplace. It just, we, we, never, we never got believed. And when you're a woman in these male-dominated workplaces, we're at risk, you know. We're more at risk for the, the boys' club and their wrath. So, you know, somebody's got to <laughs> do something. I don't know why it's so hard that, you know, these organizations, companies, employees just can't make it safe for us in the workplace. It's just like I ask you, like, the, what's um, going on? The Supreme Court of Nova Scotia stepped in and took you seriously, right? The, the HR well, Human only, Rights Tribunal right didn't, but the Supreme Court of Nova Scotia finally. Yeah, but that was only because uh, they, you know, my, because my employer did nothing for years for me and dis- dismissed my case. I went to the Nova Scotia well, Human Rights Commission. Uh, Leanne, why, why, did they dismiss, why did they dismiss your case? How did they explain doing that? If you're, you know, you've told us what you've experienced. I've read the accounts also in other media reports about you. How do they, how do they, how do they dismiss your case? What did they say? What did they write? Well, they, they, they had my case for five years, and they basically did nothing on my case. And I'm not joking. I went through seven different officers. Um, that just went one desk to another. It was uh, kept on... Um, on a shelf gathering dust for a couple years and nothing was done on it. Um, and then finally at the last minute, I guess five years where they were like, we got to get rid of this case, I guess. I don't know. And so they, they basically did a very shoddy investigation. It was incomplete. It was unprofessional. And they just decided to just dismiss it. And my only recourse was to, you know, and I had been sending them tons of information about what was going on with me throughout the years and they hadn't and and when I saw got the record the final you know file I saw that there was no note keeping there was no I mean nothing was done on it and so my only recourse was to spend thousands of dollars more and find a lawyer to um, take on a judicial review I filed for a judicial review and so 
that's when, and that took another year and a half, when I finally found a lawyer, and no lawyers wanted to take it on. And when I finally did... Um, Why do you say no lawyers wanted to take it on? Well, it was, I don't know, because gender discrimination isn't taken let me ask, seriously. Let me, ask, let me ask you, Toya and Jamie, is that, is that a common denominator situation where you try to find legal representation, which is expensive, and you're putting out your own money, uh, Atoya, is that difficult? Is it difficult? What's difficult for you? Well, in my case, it is in particular because the RCMP falls under a different bracket of laws than the regular employer. So you have to actually find someone who has a specialized skill set. Um, and in this case, mine is extremely expensive because he has that skill set, right? But he has probably, I don't know, 20 or more probably RCMP clients because he's a very specialized lawyer. But yeah, I mean, it's not, they're not a dime a dozen. And they're expensive. I mean, should women really, who work in the public service, who put their lives on the line every day to go in their jobs, have should they really have to take a legal action no, against their employer no, and pay out of pocket not. to get justice when they were almost clearly not. or abused at work? Now, with, with, yeah, with, it is difficult, and it's um, and I think the financial burden is what stops most women, even though that's their last recourse because the union or their human rights complaint commission or their internal investigators failed them. Um, their last resort is a legal process, but they see what we're up against. And unfortunately, I, I don't blame them, but we really want women to come forward they, because they're not going to get well. They're going to get more sick. Their health is going to suffer if they don't. And it, that really well, it's my sense. My it's my sense that more and more women are going to be going to be coming forward. Good. Uh, Jamie, there is a professional association, a union. We've, we've talked about um with with the RCMP, we talked. We mentioned the union to you and and to Leanne. What function did your your association perform for you? Well, I think the problem is, is they don't understand violence against women. Um, they just want to sweep it under the rug, and it's all white males. So that's a problem right there. We need more diversity. Um, so I felt like I needed support because a grievance wasn't been filed hadn't been filed, so I hired my own lawyer, and yes, it's been over $40,000 trying to fight this, and if my human rights application does get heard, again, I will have to pay to fight that out of my own pocket, but I'm willing to do that because that's how strongly I feel that, you know, it's very important to have zero tolerance in the workplace for violence. Um, They need to punish these people that are committing these crimes. We need separate sleeping areas and washrooms in all fire halls. We need cameras. I mean, if there was a camera, I would have proof, and I wouldn't have had to been, have been investigated and be further traumatized. And we need bystanders. I mean, these are first responders that wouldn't even help one of their own that was a victim of violence. The detective called it domestic violence in a fire hall. And then we need roundtable discussions, small groups with firefighters, so they can hear, you know, how these actions are impacting victims and make that connection. Yeah. Let me take a break. We'll come back. With Latoya Montague and uh, Leanne Tessier and Jamie Wilson, two of them are firefighters, Leanne and Jamie. Latoya Montague, civilian employee for the RCMP, but she had the highest, uh, one of the highest security clearances and a very important role at the RCMP, and she's close to bankruptcy now because of the of the costs of, uh, of, of hiring her, her own lawyer to move forward with the charges she's bringing against the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. We'll come back on The Green Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Um, Atoya Montague, RCMP, civilian employee. You know Atoya's story now. 
Leanne Tessier, Halifax or Nova Scotia firefighter, and Jamie Wilson is Toronto firefighter. And I just checked my Twitter account and my email, and there were several messages from Bernice, who is a uh, identifies herself as a Toronto firefighter. We don't know each other. We don't know anything about each other. I don't know what you're going to say, Bernice, but thank you for calling. Thanks for getting in touch. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for uh, broadcasting. <laughs> well, go ahead, please. What do you want to add to the conversation here? Yeah, I, I would just like to say, I mean, this is I'm calling out on my own. I'm not rep, I'm not re- representing uh, management of Toronto, the city of Toronto or our union, but uh, I've been with the city of Toronto. I mean, I've been with Toronto Fire Services for uh, seven years now. And uh, I can't speak for any of the ladies on this panel for your experiences, but uh, I can tell you one thing: I've, 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 uh, you know, I've had nothing but support from the beginning. Um, before I even got on the job, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I wasn't. I was born and raised not in Canada. Um, English is my second language. I kind of learned it, and I'm uh, half Chinese and half German. And I always got a lot of support, uh, especially from the men. In the Toronto Fire Services, even before I got on the job, then when I got on the job, I mean, I was, I am part of that brotherhood, the sisterhood, you know what I mean? And I know a lot of other females on the job who feel exactly the same that I do. And, you know, I want to thank you for opening up this conversation because it's, it's an absolutely necessary conversation that we need to have as men and women together. Um, but, you know, my experience has been very, very different. And I, I, I got to tell you, I'm like, my heart is my heart is pounding right now because, you know, I've worked with so many amazing men on this job and so many men that are so outspoken towards women. And that really take the time to get to know you and really get the time to take the time to, you know, really give you a chance and, you know, uh, and, and, and be good to you. And it's just been amazing. And I feel like these people are now being slandered you know, and kind of dragged through the mud. And I feel like my brothers are being attacked and they don't deserve it. And I, I'm just completely shocked at the approach from the media to the, towards the subject because they're painting all these guys that, you know, are amazing. And well, Bernice, all- Bernice, we're telling a story and I have mm-hmm. twice, I've, let me finish, please. I've twice officially invited the commissioner of the RCMP to come on the program and I've done what they've asked me to do including providing questions I was going to ask, which I never do, but I did it in this case, and all we got was shut down. The RCMP has settled cases out of court. There are more than 500 women of the RCMP who are involved in class action lawsuits. There's a lot going on here, and I appreciate your experience, but my guests are telling me about their experience. Uh, uh, Jamie? No, absolutely. No, hold on, hold on. Please. Let's, let's, let's have you... Let's, I, I'm only going to stop you because I've got two and a half minutes left in the hour. Um, okay. Jamie, go ahead and speak with Bernice. I... Hi, Bernice. Hi, Jamie. How, how are you? Going? Good. You? I'm pretty good, thanks. Yeah, how have you been? Uh, it's been a struggle. Um, but... Uh, I'm, I mean, everybody's voice is valid, so I appreciate you speaking out about this as well. And I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear that you haven't experienced anything I have. No, I haven't. And to be honest, I mean, I've worked with all of the, I'm, and I'm not at all like saying anything about what has happened because I don't know you and I wasn't there when what happened to you happened. But I have worked with uh, a lot of the guys that were put up on charges, and I, I can't, I can only tell you my experience with them have has been completely different and that's all i can say all right well bernice i appreciate you calling okay thanks very much um is there is there um 
is there a division of opinion? Is there is there um, conflict between women on in, in the fire services or the or the RCMP on this on this point about male harassment? You want me to go first? Because sure. Yeah. I don't think. Uh, and we only have again. We only have ninety I seconds. Have any woman come to me and say, "I can't believe this happened to you." It's never happened to me. Not one. So, I you know, and now mind you, I you know, I'm not in the workplace anymore, but. I um, I think it's great that Bernice feels that she's being treated with respect and dignity, and is right. that a win? That's a that we should be cheering for that. Excellent. Certainly Excellent. doesn't certain, certainly doesn't, doesn't take away from the fact that hundreds of others are having a different experience. Yeah, doesn't, yeah. So I'm going to let the other talk because I think there's a different thing going on in the fire service. You know, there's always a small percentage that might not have a problem for whatever reason, but this is not true for a large percentage of us. There are women that say, you know, this doesn't exist. And if you've been around these environments, you know that that's not completely true. Well, there's a lot more to come. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of guessing, making an educated guess on that. Uh, there's a lot more still ahead. And I thank you, Atoya, as always, for, um, you, for coming thank on the show you. and sharing your experience. Leanne, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Roy. And Jamie, good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. I just wanted to um, comment on that. Um, uh, that saying that you said to me, because it was so powerful about shooting inward. Could you repeat that? Uh, I don't have the time because I've got a break right now. I've got like four <laughs> seconds. Okay, so we'll do it another day. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jamie Wilson, uh, Leanne Tessier, and Atoya Montague. We'll come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Second song, uh, Victoria, British Columbia, on Friday night with a tragically hip and uh, their their final concert, final concert tour began in Victoria, British Columbia, and um, we talked about it yesterday, and we had uh, started all our so- hours with songs by the hip, and I read um, in the CBC story that uh, Chris Marshmansky uh, had traveled a thousand kilometers, driven a thousand kilometers to be at that concert and Chris joins us on the on the show today along with his brother Theo. Hey Chris. Hi Roy, how are you? Good sir. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. And thank you for your interest. Yeah, and Theo, good to talk to you, sir. Thank you. I uh, appreciate uh, appreciate the interest. So you guys have been hip fans for a long time. Yeah, uh, Chris here. I first saw them back in 1989 when uh, they were literally a small bar band uh, just after the Up to Here album had been released, and right. uh, even at that time, I think it was recognized that they were a pretty talented bunch of guys to, to be starting off as a Canadian band. And they're great music and great Canadian stories. Absolutely. You know, uh, anybody who can take communities like Hazel Dean, uh, Bob Cajun, Attawapiskat, Clackwood Sound, and Cape Spear, and turn them into classic rock anthems has got to be Canada's band. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, what was it like at the? Uh, and, and you can both answer or choose to address this as you wish. What was it like to be in, uh, be at the, the concert before it began, knowing what what was happening, and then as the concert went on, what were the emotions that you were experiencing? 
Go ahead, Theo. Uh, for me, it, it was uh, complete anticipation. I, I just can't imagine uh, being in a world without Ward, uh, without the hip, uh, constantly putting out uh, hit al- albums. Um, there was a lot of excitement going on, a lot of uh, anxiety, I guess, for some people that were having a hard time getting tickets. Now we've got a bit of a problem, Theo, with the uh, with your mobile phone. The connection isn't isn't that great. Uh, Chris, what about uh, what about the what were you feeling as it as before it started and then as the concert went on? Yeah, it was uh, very exciting, as Theo mentioned. Um, as I had driven a thousand kilometers, I thought it fitting to uh, to put the hip on my iPod and play uh, play their music the entire journey down. Uh, in total, uh, round trip, I was just uh, under two thousand kilometers and over three hundred songs, uh, all <laughs> tragically hip, and uh, it was uh, so it really set the stage for a very uh, emotional and powerful day. Uh, the media presence was really intense, and, and uh, I'm really thankful that uh, the country has really focused on these incredible uh, artists and musicians for their final tour. And then uh, as we headed into the arena for the concert, uh, people were just absolutely electrically buzzing with anticipation and emotion, recognizing that, um, you know, in all likelihood, this will be the last time most of us will ever see the Tragically Hip live in person. I imagine an entire country of Canadians uh, uh, here in Canada and then around the world will be tuning in on August 20th to watch the Kingston show, the final one of their tour. And then uh, once we were in our chairs and, and really excited about the seats that we had, uh, the stage was literally, it felt like it was in touching distance. Uh, you know, we talked to a few people around us, and, uh, you know, one lady had traveled all the way from Saskatoon. Um, others had come from Texas, uh, across Victor, uh, Vancouver Island, from the lower mainland, in particular to catch the concert in Victoria with that small venue, a much more intimate setting, you know, reminiscent of the old days when they used to play smaller venues and and really rock it out, Uh, really was a fitting location to watch the Tragically Hip on their uh, start uh, kicking off the tour. Yeah, and then when they announced, "Hey, five minutes, folks," until the concert starts, it that just yeah, you could just feel the hair standing up on the back of your neck, and then the lights went down and and it started. And uh, from that opening note of "Boots or Hearts," um, yeah, the crowd was on their feet, and uh, I know my brother and I both had sore backs just from standing on that concrete. But there was not a millisecond we were going to sit down and not give the tragically hip and gourd the the dues that they uh, certainly have earned over the years. Guys, I got to tell you, this there's only one way to follow with uh, what you just said. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and let's listen. Thank you. Thank you. from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.